1: in and across Chicago and over the internet, you can make a generous recurring gift by going to our website, urbanvillagechurch.org backslash give. And thanks for helping us with your ears, actions, and dollars to build up God's
0: kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And now, here's the latest sermon. Hi, I'm Amy. Um, I'm going to read scripture today. Um. And my pronouns are she, hers, and hers. I'm just going to lower this. Okay, so uh, today we have a reading from Exodus. It's going to be Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. So it's a little bit. Hang in there. Um, now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river where her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she, sh- she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsfolk. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, um, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, he saw two Hebrews fighting, and he said to the one who was in the wrong, why do you strike your fellow Hebrew? He answered, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. The word of God for the people of God.
1: Good morning, Urban Village Church. My name is Emily McGinley, and I have uh, the great joy of um, serving as uh, one of the pastors on staff um, here in this community. I... Oh, it does. Okay. Um, (laughs) Sorry. I usually spend my time on the other end of the city, uh, on the south side, um, in Woodlawn. Uh, I am currently the um, pastor of uh, Urban Village Church Hyde Park Woodlawn, and um, come January, we'll be moving into a new role where I'm struggling with some imposter syndrome um, as the uh, executive pastor um, of Urban Village. Um, I love coming up here and both connecting with folks that I have known for a long time, uh, with folks like Douglas, who I remember when he first showed up, he was, uh, fresh into retirement at Andersonville making coffee. And, uh, he continues to serve this community to help us be who we are. Um, folks, uh, uh, who like Trevor, who I, who I met six months ago or a little more than that, um, at our, um, robust, uh, coffee, um, Christmas Eve, 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 uh, service. And, um, and then connecting with new folks who, uh, on, on Tycho YTT and the, and the wonderful, um, Uh, cinematic uh, work that he does. Uh, This community is just one that uh, continues to be rich in um, spirit and rich in the gifts that folks bring to help us be who we are and do what we do. So it's a pleasure to be able to be with you here today. Um, As we uh, kind of focus our hearts and minds to this uh, moment in our service, please join me in a word of prayer. God, we give you thanks for the gift of this morning, um, certainly the beauty of the seasons and the ways that they can show up in so many different ways. Um, but we also thank you for this moment that um, that in the midst of a chaotic world and um, lives that sometimes don't make sense, that we can gather in a space to meditate on your ancient word, to remember your promises, to recenter ourselves in who we are in you so that as we go about the lives that we, lead, um, that we live um, throughout the week, we might be strengthened, renewed, and reminded of the ways that you walk with us, as we heard earlier, the ways that you continue to be present with us and that you won't let us fall, but in fact, you carry us through um, the good times and the hard times and that we don't do that alone, but that we do that together in community. So be with us uh, as we lean into your word, clear away the clutter of our hearts and our minds and help us to be present for what it is that you would have to say to us today. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So if you've been around the Bible for a while, uh, you've heard about Moses at some point, point. and really if you haven't been around the Bible, uh, you've probably seen at least one or two cultural references to him, if not on the far side, uh, then maybe uh, on South Park, or at the very least uh, on repeat every April for the last 45 years a freedom fighter who led the Hebrews out from Egyptian economic exploitation and oppression. Moses as a person and a symbol is a powerful presence in our cultural and religious imagination. Martin Luther, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was often called the Moses of his people as he led them um, toward uh, racial justice. Uh, And in fact, Barack Obama sometimes was likened to Joshua um, as as the one who, who picked up from where Moses left off to bring people into the promised land. And so if you know uh, about Moses at all, you're usually thinking about the highlights, Uh, parting the Red Sea, the Ten Commandments, maybe a burning bush, Moses standing before Pharaoh uh, with his fist raised, demanding, let my people go. Uh, It's these images that most of us are familiar with. We're so used to seeing Moses as the leader of the Hebrews that I wouldn't fault you if you didn't catch that this phrase, let my people go, particularly here in our passage today so early in his life and story, um, that had a profound meaning for Moses. Moses' life, uh, if you uh, aren't familiar, uh, and we heard a little bit in the passage today, is conceived and emerges in the background of systematic genocide. Hebrews, who were once a welcomed workforce, have become a threat to the wealth and power of Egypt. There are just too many of them, and something had to be done to keep those folks in check. So orders are given, and midwives are recommissioned as murderers. Of course, people whose calling is to bring life into the world are not about to become agents of death. So those tricky midwives uh, uh, find a workaround, which leads them to uh, uh, putting a three-month-old baby named Moses uh, uh, in a basket uh, down a river to a place where Pharaoh's daughter is bathing. Islamic traditions call her Lady Asiya, which is what I'll call her since I prefer to give her a name rather than keep calling her Pharaoh's daughter. It's no accident then that baby Moses shows up uh, when and where he did though. As it turns out, Moses' sister is Lady Asia's servant. Lady Asiah takes pity on this baby and decides to raise him as her own. Moses' sister says to Lady Asiah, would you like me to go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And of course, we all know exactly which Hebrew woman she has in mind. And so here in this short passage, we have seen just two examples of how people figure out a way to meet their goals in the midst of structures of oppression. And while these are the things that we need to do to stay alive over time, they begin to take their toll. Moses' birth mother gets to nurse him and love him in the early years of his life, but not as his mother. Her body and its productions are up for sale until the time that her services are no longer needed. She is the hired help. The things we do for survival can cost us. Moses grows up loved and nurtured by his birth mother and sister, but perhaps never really actually knowing who they really were. He grows up with a Hebrew face in an Egyptian palace, a member of Pharaoh's household with all of the rights and privileges that come along with it. And I can't help but wonder uh, whether at some point one of Moses' friends paid him a well-intended compliment, similar to the one that my best friend growing up paid me, saying, I don't even think of you as being Hebrew. Thanks. As an adoptee, Moses knows the Egyptians. He knows firsthand their love, their kindness, and the greatness of their intelligence. They were, in many ways, his people. But Moses also knew how they saw him, right? That he was one of the good ones an exception to the rule, and he knows that his belonging is contingent upon him upholding that side of the setup. But at some point, it's just not worth it anymore because that wasn't the whole story of who he was. But what was that other story? Who is this other person, right? He, he knew who had really built Pharaoh's house. He knew on whose backs the wealth of the storehouses were maintained. And all of those inconvenient questions then welled up within him in an uncontainable way. And he knew he could no longer see past the abuse, the exploitation, and the struggle of the Hebrews. Because they too were his people. But did they see him as theirs? He goes to the one place he knows where he'll find out, the workyards. And so here in our passage this morning, we read about a defining moment when there is this perfect storm of who Moses is, Egyptian and Hebrew, a swirl of questions around identity and destiny. When he sees this encounter between the Egyptian and the Hebrew, what Moses sees firsthand is the line of power on which his own life has been so carefully balanced. Clearly, the overseer has more power than the Hebrew, and clearly the Hebrews have, been, have operated under oppressive labor practices and death-dealing legislation. And the, the injustice and the oppression is obvious. So Moses then, uh, his heart perhaps in the right place, uh, intervenes on the Hebrews' behalf and accidentally kills this Egyptian. And he knows what he needs to do um, in order to protect himself in this system. He knows that no one has seen except for the person that he has defended, and so Moses covers it up. But then he comes around to this second event where two Hebrews are fighting each other, and maybe he's starting to feel himself a little, right, identifying with the people of his DNA. And so Moses intervenes again. Brothers, he says, why fight one another? We don't need this Hebrew on Hebrew violence. There aren't enough of us around to begin with. But the feeling isn't mutual, and Moses is reminded of who he isn't. More than that, he realizes his secret is no secret at all. And in the midst of rejection, shame, and humiliation, he runs. Moses runs all the way to Midian, a rural area far out of Pharaoh's jurisdiction, far away from anyone who would know him or his story. And there he stays for 20 years. For those among us who straddle two racial identities, this can feel all too familiar. As a biracial person who grew up in a predominantly white context, I know that I'm not Chinese enough to be Chinese. And I'm certainly not white enough to be white. But for my mother who grew up um, a refugee in Taiwan, escaping um, Chinese uh, communist takeover, whose trauma shaped her worldview, not to mention her hopes and her dreams for her children, it made all the sense in the world for her to want her half-white children growing up in the United States to be as white as possible. Every decision she made to not teach us Chinese, to not seek out spaces where other Chinese people gathered in community, to diminish herself as much as possible, all of that was shaped by her trauma and the mentality of survival by any means necessary. But the things we do for survival can cost us. Now, this is the second week in our anti-racism sermon series exploring what it takes for us to have the courageous conversations that we need in order to pursue collective liberation. Last week, Pastor Christian talked about how we might define racism, a toxic math equation of race prejudice and power, or as Ibram X. Kendi defines it, a powerful collection of racist policies that lead to racial inequity and are supported by racist ideas. This helps us to kind of get on the same page about what we're talking about when we're talking about racism. But because we live and breathe racist ideas, because we take them in from just about every corner of our lives, even in spite of our best efforts, because it invades our psyches at every turn, because we live in a container whose edges and contours were defined long before we stepped foot into the world, because of all of this, we're taking some time to do a little bit of what Moses was forced to do in Midian. Step back, and take stock of just who we are, and how that shapes our lives. Crossroads Anti-Racism, our partners who led us through our anti-racism audit a few years ago, talk about how there's this dance that we do, a pattern of behavior and a framework of self-understanding that's been ingrained with us when it comes to our relationships across, uh, across racial identity. And one of those patterns is called internalized racial oppression which Crossroads defines as a complex multi-generational socialization process that teaches people of color to believe, accept, and live out negative societal definitions of self and to fit into and live out inferior societal roles. That's a lot of words, I'm going to say it again. A complex multi-generational socialization process that teaches people of color to believe, accept, and live out negative societal definitions of self and to fit into and live out inferior societal roles. These behaviors support and help maintain the race construct. We can't help but be affected by these messages, the messages that are all around us, that uh, Asian women are sexualized and exotic, that uh, black women are angry, that Asian men are less masculine, that Latinx men are bad hombres, right? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about because you've seen it, you've heard it, you've felt it somewhere and it distorts our relationships as people of color within ourselves as well as with one another. Now, Ibram X Kendi, who I mentioned earlier, talks about the ways that this showed up in his own life in a recent podcast interview with Ezra Klein.
2: Makes sense, yeah. yeah. I mean, I I to me, the only thing wrong with black people is that we think something is wrong with black people. And I write about in the text in how to be an anti-racist how in high school in particular, I I thought that I was a fool. And part of the reason why I thought I was a fool was because I was black. And part of the reason black people thought we were fools is because we were constantly told we were fools. And it affected my academic performance in high school. And and so obviously, you had these racist ideas that I internalized, and then it led to my behavior. But the question though, is does everybody respond similarly to the internalization of racist ideas. In other words, some black people sort of hear these ideas about black people being fools and internalize them and it affects them negatively, while others it actually affects them positively. It's just like, you know, how people respond to trauma. Some people actually come out of that trauma with sort of negative behavioral traits and then some people in a sense become more sturdy and resilient. And so
1: So it might be tempting to say, well, you know, there's a glass half full, right? Uh, Like if internalized racist oppression affects people positively maybe sometimes, is it really a bad thing, right? But if you take uh, Kendi's example of trauma, that it can lead to negative outcomes for some folks, uh, but also positive for others, would you be questioning whether trauma was a bad thing, right? (laughs) The fact remains that people's self-understanding, regardless of how they respond, is shaped, or should I say misshapen, by these kinds of constructs that they exist in. But this doesn't stand on its own. It exists in relationship to a counterpart, a dance partner of sorts. Uh, Crossroads calls this internalized racial superiority, which is a complex, multi-generational socialization process that teaches white people to believe, accept, and live out superior societal definitions of self and to fit into and live out superior societal roles. These behaviors define and normalize the race construct and its outcome white supremacy. Now, there might be folks um, who sort of feel like, well, yeah, but just because I'm white or um, just because I'm X, Y, or Z, like, I also have these other things, these other oppressions that I live under. This is all entirely true. So um, I'm not negating or diminishing any of that. But what we're talking about specifically during this sermon series is about race, because we need to slice the pie somehow in different spaces. Um, So I just kind of want to put that disclaimer in there. Because IRO and IRS exist in this container where all the norms are defined by whiteness. Just like for many of our LGBTQ identified folks, we, we all exist uh, in, in a context of heterosec- heteronormativity, right? Um, and so in a similar way, uh, we exist in, uh, in a society and, and worldview that is defined by whiteness. And a quick example would be that when people ask me where I'm from or where my family is from, no one is looking for me to say Ireland right? <laughs> That's not what they're looking for, right? The center, the norm, is whiteness, and all people in the U.S. are conditioned to measure the world in terms of how close or far something is, or someone is, from whiteness. And while this shows up as internalized racist, racial oppression in people of color, it shows up as internalized racial superiority for white people. So uh, internalized racial superiority might say, let me show you how to do it the right way about things that are neither scientific nor fact-based, Right? It assumes that the values of whiteness need no defense because why would anyone do it any other way? It's comfortable talking about the black community or the Asian community, but never mentions the white community because white people are not a monolith, right? They are individuals whose lives and stories are specific and particular and diverse as if the same is not true for non-white people, right? I could go on, but the subtle message that people get is that whiteness is special, separate, different, better. The place from which where we measure ourselves. And I'm speaking from my personal experience here. Um, an important thing to note about all of this, though, is that you're starting to feel, if you're starting to kind of feel overwhelmed or tired, right? Because these are overwhelming and tiring conversations, is to understand that the to, to kind of pay attention to the first part of those definitions, right? That these are complex, multi generational socialization processes. This is not so much about any one person doing an obviously bad thing as much as understanding how even the most well-intended among us are conditioned in these ways. Waking up to these realities is a process that unfolds over time. For Moses, it was a hard and rude awakening at that moment, and there was a lot of reprogramming that had to be done before he was ready to respond to God's call on his life. And even then, if you go on to read that story, he says, I'm not the one you're looking for. Find someone else to speak for me. Most of that reprogramming happened among a small community of people in Midian who loved him, who walked with him, and who built a life together with him. When he returned to Egypt, Moses still didn't have it all figured out, but he did have a kind of groundedness in his experience and his location. He had confidence in his God-given identity, and God-granted call to step out with courage and faith, to claim his identity and purpose among a people who maybe didn't fully sort of feel like he was really Hebrew, right? And then to also stand before Pharaoh and his estranged adoptive family to disrupt this dance between IRO and IRS to raise his fist and say, without self-consciousness or even apology, let my people go. At UVC, we are trying to create spaces like what Moses had in Midian. Spaces to do our work of reprogramming. Now, for people of color, it's about becoming more aware of the ways that we participate and uphold the race construct within ourselves as well as between one another. And I'm gonna break it down here because this is important and I don't think that it gets enough um, attention paid to it. People of color have work to do among ourselves. We can't have the conversations that we need to have because of one of the sad because one of the sad distortions of white supremacy is that it pits people of color against each other. Blacks against Latinx, against Asians, like a racial caste system. There are these different intersections around melanin, class, education, and respectability that white supremacy exploits in order to uphold the structure and keep us separated from having to grapple with the stuff that we need to work out amongst each other. And for white people, it's about learning to identify the ways that we participate and uphold white supremacy, even in spite of our best efforts and intentions, right? To recognize and then strategize for a different way to live and move and be in relationship with one another, to disrupt our side of that piece, of that dance. Now, the technology that we use to do this is called caucusing will impact this more in a couple of weeks, but racial caucusing provides a space to recognize the ways that we are playing into these frameworks, to identify the ways that they constantly run, like background apps in our consciousness, driving our thinking, behavior, and decision-making. And we caucus not only to become aware, but then to strategize together, to talk about, how can we begin to disrupt these patterns within ourselves? If you've been in therapy, right? You probably have some versions of these conversations. I had no idea that I, was, I would react always. I, I fall into this pattern every Thanksgiving when I'm having dinner with my family, right? I react to these patterns. I, how do I both recognize and then what, how do I strategize to disrupt them, right? It's the same kind of thing, but very specifically around um, internalized racial superiority and oppression, right? We caucus to strategize, to talk about how do we disrupt um, these things in ourselves and as a church too, to support each other in that work pursuing our discipleship honestly and humbly together. It feels big, maybe impossible. And the impossible will take a little while. But even if we never fully get there, as we do this work, what we will get, what we will achieve is that we will become less afraid, less anxious, and more courageous. Less afraid of one another, of ourselves, Less anxious about the complexity of the world that we live in. As we do this work, we will gain the courage that we need to face ourselves really clearly and also one another, and to find the truth that sets us free, to move from spiritual captivity to collective liberation. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks that you have shown us time and again throughout the stories of your people in scripture that we can be people of courage, that we can, in fact, confront the things about ourselves that we would rather not know exist, and that we can not only confront them and move through them, but know ourselves as wholly loved by you through the entire process. And so help our community to be a community that claims that love, that moves with confidence from that love, to live and move and be courageous in our conversations with one another, in our reflections with one another, so that we can live and move and be a community that reflects your grace, your truth, your honesty, and your humility in this city that so desperately needs more models more examples of how we can do this work of anti-racism without, um, without shame, without fear, and with full confidence that you are leading us to a more whole and life-giving world that you have envisioned us to live and um, build. We pray this with trust, with gratitude. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.